Welcome to the Idle Book Club. This month we discuss Telegraph Avenue by Michael Shabon. This is the Idle Book Club for the month of November, and we have read Telegraph Avenue by Michael Shabin. I'm Chris Remo. And I'm Sean Vanneman. And we chose this book because this is an author who I think Sean and I both like. I think you've definitely read more of him than I have. Maybe, um, but probably not by much. I mean, I've read a lot of his short stories in Wonder Boys, uh, Cutler and Clay, mm-hmm. um, Yiddish Policeman's Union, and this. Right. So yeah. I've So I've read... Cavalier and Clay, Yiddish Police Union, and this. Okay. So I've not read Wonder Boys, and I, I haven't. I don't think I've read any of his short fiction. Yeah, all, all the short fiction that I've read is always. I think it was from like probably his master's program. It felt like some of his older stuff. Okay. But uh, it's great. But yeah, and I up. and I really loved both of the both of his two previous novels, uh, Yiddish Police Union and Cavalier and Clay. I, and Cavalier and Clay especially is one of my favorite novels. You know, of the last decade, I suppose. Yeah, I, I thought they're both just fantastic books. Yeah. So good. And so this just came out um, a couple months ago. And I think we both had just picked it up independently anyway and just decided, let's read this. Yeah. It felt like uh, it was cool to read a new book. It was definitely nice to read something that um, neither of us had read before, uh-huh. which that's was great. the first time that yeah, yeah. that's been the case on the book club. And what did you think about it? Uh, I definitely – I came away with a positive opinion for sure. Same. Um, there were more low points for me in this book than there were on – in either of his two works that I've read prior to this. Um, and I would say it was a lot less even than either of those as a result of that. Mm-hmm. And there were more, I, I think there's a lot more to nitpick here. Definitely. Um, it's a kind of a problematic book in some ways, yeah. but I would say I enjoyed the, the act of reading it maybe more like, I, yeah, I would say the enjoyment I had from reading it, from reading the pages and reading his sentences, I would say was higher than my kind of total appreciation of it. But that was totally enough for me. The whole was lesser than the sum of the it parts. It kind of was. Yeah, it yeah. was a little bit. But I liked the yeah. parts. It kind of bums me out because when people ask me, actually on the way here, uh, a buddy of mine said, oh, how is it? He saw it in the backseat of my car and said, yeah. oh, how is it? And I yeah. said, because he's reading it and he's about 100 pages in and not into it. He said, do I keep reading it? And I said, it's great. Yeah, you should finish it. And he goes, well, how is it? Where do you rank it in Shaben's works? Uh-huh. And I had to say four which is horrible. <laughs> it's, it's true, but it's totally one, not right. indicative. It's <laughs> yeah. like being like the fourth fastest guy on the Jamaican like uh, uh, relay team. Right. Like you're still <laughs> mega fast. <laughs> yeah. You know. So it sounds like you did like it a lot. I really did like it a lot, but it was really hard for me to get into. I felt like the first 200 pages, and I want to know what you think about this, Chris, but it felt like the first 100 to 200 pages, Shaben was trying to like earn his voice in a weird way as, Mm. as sort of saying like the, so the book is about, um, a, it's very multiracial, but very like African-American community in Oakland. Yeah. Uh, in the very recent history in the 2000, 2004, 2004, I think. Yeah. And the main character is this guy, Archie, uh, who's black, uh, as is his wife. And then his business partner, Nat is white as is his wife. Mm -hmm. And And they own a record store and they own and they co-own a record store together, Nat and Archie. And it felt like, and so much of the book is definitely around, is Archie-centric. Archie is the protagonist of the book. And his father. And his father, yeah. Luther, yeah. who is sort of an old black exploitation kung fu master, right. <laughs> which, is, yeah. which is great. Um, and 
some because so much because the protagonist is black. It, I don't know. Maybe this is just me, but it felt like he was trying to earn mm-hmm. the, like cred and yeah. being like, I, I can I write. I think this that's character. just you. I think, yeah. and I think he was to some degree doing that throughout the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that dictated a lot of the, a lot of the voice. The thing is, when he wasn't doing that, when he was just naturalistic with the voice, and even when the voice would have like be be very uh, colloquial, and the voice would you know, and uh, when he wasn't, when I didn't feel like he was trying to earn the voice, and mm-hmm. was just, um, cl- I mean, for lack of a better term, like classic Shaben, I was in love with the book. He had me absolutely. Like, I, I agree with you in that, yeah. and I feel like that was a lot of that was mainly the li- sort of lyrical passages and the interior passages, especially, mm-hmm. and less necessarily all of the dialogue. Right. And actually, the thing that bothered me most about the voice, I have to be honest, was not the parts where he was sort of explicitly trying to earn that that credibility. It was the times where I felt like he was trying to earn something else that I didn't quite understand, which was the the strange sporadic allusions to like obscure science fiction mm-hmm. and things like very early on um in the novel um uh archie's wife gwen she is thinking about something and i can't remember what it is I don't, but i know exactly she, the part you're talking about yeah shaven draws a comparison to like an obscure star trek reference that just pops <laughs> in that, and i couldn't i still i'm unsure whether that was intended to be the interior voice of Gwen or if that was simply imposed down on the narrative by Shaben. And either way, I don't like it. I don't like well, it Gwen's as Gwen. Well, Gwen's into Star Trek ultimately. I, she yeah. is, but you don't find any concrete evidence of that until quite late in the book. And I still never buy it. It doesn't right. – it didn't feel very integrated into character to me at all. Yeah. Um, especially because – it maybe it would have been more acceptable to me if that were an isolated case and she was just a Trekkie and that's her thing. Mm-hmm. Sure. But throughout the book, there's this weird, there's this weird feeling that the universe has been set up to make everybody here obsessed with Shaben's particular pop culture appreciation. The things that he likes, like yeah. baseball cards and comics, and, and, and when there, yeah. the, the moment where that really came to a head for me, and I would say that that moment with Gwen early on was the seed of that. But then it's, it really reached its pinnacle of absurdism to me in the. When they're in the Zeppelin, there's this character, Gibson Good, who I found a little bit ridiculous, who is kind of the – he's a little bit pitched as kind of the villain of this novel. He's a very successful – he's a former athlete, right? He's a former NFL quarterback. Right. Who's opening a mega record store. Yeah, which is going to presumably – Called the Dogpile Fang. Dogpile (laughs) Fang, which is going to displace uh, most likely Archie and Nat's small neighborhood record store. And one of the strange – to me, unbelievable subplots of this book was Gibson Good repeatedly attempting to recruit Archie to come work for his company as a kind of, I guess, jazz and funk expert. Yeah, like a uh, guru or like right, an archivist who kind of owns his that section yeah. of the store. And he brings Archie up into his <laughs> his ridiculous big Zeppelin. First off, I need to point something out. Readers, this is going to sound absurd. It but- is absurd, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> this was so ridiculous, I thought. And he brings them up into the Zeppelin and they're flying around. And, so, and then over the course of conversation up in the Zeppelin, it's revealed that they somehow all of these guys, Gibson Good, his two big like um, bodyguard kind of uh, – you know, heavy muscle, yeah, his yeah. muscle, and Archie 
are all intimately familiar with like the works of Asimov and like the sci-fi novel A Canticle for, for Leibowitz, right. which I'd never even heard of until a couple months ago. I mean, no. it's it's a kind of it's the kind of thing that okay, it's not <laughs> impossible, but when you're setting up this world, you mean a former NFL quarterback owning <laughs> owning a Zeppelin then flying over Oakland talking about Asimov, yeah, not it just, impossible. It's not it's impossible, true. but it's just improbable. Even if it weren't that character, right? Even if it were a guy for whom it made more sense, it's harder to buy when it's all of these characters. Right. And it's clear from the, from the, the, the writing in that section that good didn't, good and his bodyguard did not already know this, but it, you know, it's not, it was not intended that they were kind of deliberately figuring out what Archie's jam was and then, and then. Right. In an effort to recruit him, they didn't like do research on him. They all just coincidentally knew all these things. The way this book is written. All of these characters just happen to right. just and, and I that's the and these little references are peppered throughout the book and it really detracted from it. I think me. the creative choices for what the references are <clears throat> detracted, but at the same time, the fact that they had so much in common across like race and class lines made it did did make it feel like this community in turmoil, which I liked. I but the choices was there was, with the record stuff for me already. You yeah. know, they were all such music nerds. I, that was totally sufficient it was really i gotta tell you i was so surprised because uh for anybody who hasn't read the adventures of cavalier and clay it's really it's a like era like decade spanning novel about the golden age of comics and these guys through um pre-world war like basically world war ii onwards Mm -hmm. um being these seminal figures in in comics and it's just steeped in the lore of comic history even though it's a fictional story and it was so surprising to me when, like, basically Fabens or Fabens, uh, Shabens, uh, Cavalier and Clay research just started being peppered throughout the book. <laughs> right. It just kind of felt like, oh, I got these notes here yeah, too. Yeah, like, yeah. I'm still super into this. Yeah. It just, it was weird to see the walls come down a little bit between right. his works, and it just felt, I don't know, and, that was very strange. The I thing thought. about that is that both, um, so I've not read Wonder Boys, but in, in, there's Cap- none of it in Wonder Boys. Sure. So in Cavalier and Clay oh, is and in Yiddish Policeman's Union, those are both very small worlds. Like those are both worlds in which everybody, all the, all the salient characters in them are orbit tightly around these, these very specific points of interest. In Cavalier mm-hmm. and Clay, it's the world of, of superhero comic books and in, in Yiddish Policeman's Union, it's, it's this, sort of strange alternate history Judaism that just binds right. this whole community together inextricably. Um, and I felt like that's what the, the, the thing with music was in Telegraph Avenue. Although to be fair, the, the women of the book are, are less interested in that stuff, which right. I, which they're, I thought was, believable. they're midwives. I, yeah. Um, um, like sort of super liberal East Bay, like go to your house midwives. Right. Yeah. Um, and it's, and it's, you know, it's, it's not uncommon for spouses to have different interests. So that, that was, that was, I bought that, but, but then it felt like there was this other weird layer that Shabin kind of decided to throw in there. That just didn't work for me. It was weird. Well, the thing that I thought was bizarre is I think that layer works. So Archie has a son. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. who uh-huh. shows up named Titus and he has, uh, yeah, it's a half, like a, his half son. Well, it's, oh, his, it's his son, it's his son, but yeah, it's a son, it's from, not it's his a, it's an estranged a, son who right. shows up when he's yep. 14 yep. and he, he kind of, he knew about you, you find out and he just sort of left, which is a bummer. But, uh, then his buddy Nat has a son named Jules and those two guys, they're kids who are like 14, 15 mm-hmm. and they're really into geek culture. Yeah. They like video games. 
they like it was weird that they just casually dropped that they played an MMO in the last five pages of the book. No, no, that was you in there like, earlier. Oh, that was? was when they were first when you learned when you were first introduced to oh, Julie yeah, yeah, yeah. and Titus. They they're talking about how they were playing this game online. Oh, okay, yeah. okay, yeah. I remember them talking about video games, but I didn't realize it was the same one. Anyway, uh, they are really like they play a Marvel like a fictional online Marvel comic sort of like City of Heroes game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that stuff felt totally relevant to I their agree. characters totally and it was agree. so weird yeah. that it wasn't just localized to them but it permeated the whole book yeah. Yeah, it permeated like the fact that um at one point uh gwen who is archie's um wife gives birth towards the back, like very end of the book and archie's buddy's son nat is like the only person there holding her right. no yeah no not nat um jules is the only person Jules, there yeah. holding her hand and she's making him talk about star trek to keep her mind off the contractions yeah and that was weird. <laughs> like this felt yeah. to, to your point and fell off out of place. And I, and I, I love that you brought up, um, Titus and Julie, cause I, I loved those characters and yeah. I, I actually, despite all of the complaints I've just levied, I actually think the relationships between the individual characters, um, between, you know, Archie and Gwen, between Nat and Aviva, and especially the kind of cross relationships between those two pairs. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also between, um, Titus and Julie, I thought those were all, for the most part, really excellent. And that's what, they kept, that's what kept me Same here. really with Shaben, you mm-hmm. know, for the duration of the book, essentially was, um, I, I found the plot kind of absurd, like the notion that, that a record store in 2004 is going to be this high stakes to some mogul kind of astronomically successful guy was a little hard for me to buy, especially because right. we know that it would have, it couldn't even his crazy version of it is unlikely to, succeed very long in the right. world in which we live. Well, so much um, of the plot points are absurd. Yeah. They're really like, a guy in retribution for <clears throat> Gibson good, possibly putting their record store out of business. Uh, Nat, the white guy of the, of the pair gets drunk one night, gets in his car, gets in an accident, <laughs> right. wanders out to where the Zeppelin is parked and unleashes Releases it into, into the, the sky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And like, right. and then gets arrested. Towards yeah. the end of the the book. Whole, it's weird. I feel like there's these very grounded characters who are surrounded right. by just the most bonkers occurrences. Right. But the, the tone of the book is fairly muted still. And so yeah, you've got these just strange plot lines. That and, and it's always characters like sort of talking around their their neuroses in a really very naturalistic, great yeah. way. There aren't these sort of bombastic character collisions no. that you would expect with the bombastic plot points. Except for maybe Gibson Good himself. Yeah, he's he's only he maybe is he's like in fifteen pages of the book bit, though, but, maybe maybe twenty pages. Yeah, but total. his shadow looms over everything all the time. <laughs> well, also Luther and Valletta. So it's great. The, the story really does have like I think it's kind of fascinating, and I think it's actually a, a ballsy decision decision because it in 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 a at risk of feeling really unnaturalistic in the char- in the character setups, there's incredible symmetry to all the characters. So there's like. Archie and Nat, who co-own the store, who have wa- and they work together. Who have two wives. I mean, they each have a wife who work together as midwives, and then they each have a son who uh, is either gay or bi curious, and they well, have a not, relationship. I mean, it's clear that Titus is not. He's. I mean, it's, it's, he, he. Yeah, I mean, what, what where his sexuality ends up when he's twenty five or thirty, I think is probably up for debate in the book. I don't. I, I, don't know. I think so. I think. I think. I don't know. I, I bought that Titus was fully straight, but was, I don't know. <laughs> using they have full on, but they have full on, uh, yeah, intercourse. It always goes one way and it seems like, I don't know. Yeah. I, 
it, I thought that was interesting, though, for what it's worth. Yeah. Like, the ambiguity around that, their sort of, like, their sexual relationship, yeah. these young no, boys. No, I, th- I thought it was great. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of it is is comes out of the fact that just at that age, everyone's kind of figuring stuff out, but I think Julie more so. I mean, I think I think he... I think the sort of romantic tendencies really only went in one direction. Oh, I agree that, with that. That, that. that I definitely agree with. Um, and I thought that was really interesting because the genuine friendship went clearly in both directions. Right. And those guys clearly had legitimate friendship and respect yeah. that was mutual. And combining that with this weird kind of half love interest thing, I thought was really interesting and effective. And I thought it was all, also all like so. confusing in a great way, in a, in a way, yeah, that, in the way I, that I agree. Child romance mm-hmm. is exactly right. Yeah. Because that's the way that, that romance at that age just feels regardless of your sexual orientation. Um, I think just in, in general, yeah. um, you don't really know these, those are things you're generally experiencing for the first time. Um, and so situating it in, in that, in that context where it, it doesn't have that, it doesn't just have that kind of traditional ambiguity. It also has this very overt mm-hmm. ambiguity. Right. Um, I thought I thought actually worked really well. Yeah, I thought uh, he did a wonderful job of also portraying uh, Jules's sort of just inner turmoil. <laughs> like yeah. every time Jules gets his heart broken, mm-hmm. you know about it and you feel it. It's yeah. really great. I really yeah. thought that was wonderful, and because I think Titus does too, but he's. Yeah, well, off to it. I, both of those. One of the things yeah. I really liked about both of those kids is that they're both very with. They both have certain elements of reserve in them, but for very different reasons. You can for very different reasons given each of their personal histories. Mm-hmm. You know, Titus has this situation where he was abandoned by his father and is kind of he was bounced between different places where he's living, and now and then he moved to Oakland and was kind of living in this potentially semi-abusive situation with his, with his, like his aunt, I believe. Yeah. It's almost like a halfway house sort of thing. There's a lot of kids living there. Yeah. Yeah, And it just seemed very, it was, you know, you you can imagine why he developed the tendency to kind of withdraw within himself and like present a very stoic outlook. Whereas in Julie's case, you get the sense it comes out of more of a general insecurity Mm -hmm. and just knowing that he's very outwardly a nerd and probably, just based on the way his is the way he dresses is described and so on. Probably one who takes a lot of shit, you know, mm-hmm. at, at school. Yeah. And yeah. So and he's on. always so, self-conscious about his, his appearance. He'll exactly. show up to a house and he goes feeling like always like even extra gay in his tight, in his like short right. shorts and his tank right. top, you know, and he, you see, you can feel almost folding in on himself yeah. when he has these realizations. It's awesome. And I love the way that both of that, I totally believed that those two characters could recognize something of themselves in the other, Absolutely. even though it came from a completely different place. Yeah. Um, and, and the fact that they shared surface level interests allowed that, allowed them to gel mm-hmm. in, in that way. I thought that was just great. And the, um, and yeah, and, and the, between the adults as well, I thought the relationships were really, really interesting. I mean, the, this is, to me, this was a book about people who know they're making mistakes and make them anyway. Right. And there were people, I, there were, I think a couple people on the, um, <laughs> it's worth mentioning. Uh, I think generally speaking, the idle thumbs, readership, at least the visible portions of the Adult Thumb readership on the forums was not, not so much a fan of this book. It didn't, it didn't go over very well. I don't think. Um, and one of the complaints I saw was, um, these characters seem to know they're making bad decisions and they keep making bad decisions. And I thought that's kind of what the book was about. Me too. It's what I felt the book was about. And I didn't think it was a weakness. I think that's how people are. I think Mm -hmm. it's not everybody, but I think that's how a lot of people are. I mean, I can definitely look at, I can definitely look at my own family and look at, look at, 
decisions my parents made growing up and and think, wow, in retrospect, if I were writing all these things down, I, you know, you can look back on decisions people made and be like, what on earth were you th- – you knew what you were doing clearly right. again and again. And it's just – this is how humans are unfortunately. And I, I really believed it in the context of these characters and their situation right. because – as you get into adulthood, you have all of these, like I'm one to talk, as you get into adulthood, you know, not, <laughs> not, to like, yeah, not, not to speak down on people at all, but just, I think everybody can relate to this. You, you're an adult and there are all these things, all these responsibilities you have and all these things you're interested in that you're still interested in from when you were younger that you haven't, in a lot of cases, stopped interest, being interested in all these demands on your time and all these Things you've worked for that are potentially coming to fruition that you now want to be able to enjoy, but you have other responsibilities that in a lot of ways keep you from doing those things. And the, the, all the dividing lines between those parts of your lives are a lot harder to reconcile often maybe than, than they should be or than if we're acting completely rationally, they, they would be. Um, and I, you know, this book obviously elevated those situations in some cases. I mean, I, I kind of, that's some of my criticisms of the plotting has to do with the, the way that a lot, there were just a lot of contrivances set to make those stakes even higher. Mm-hmm. But in the fundamental ways, the way that's, the ways that couples deal with each other, the way that parents deal with their children, um, I, that stuff came across very believably and honestly to me. And I, I, I really bought it. I also think it's a perfect, like that inner turmoil of making decisions that you know are wrong and doing things that you are regretting as you're doing them mm-hmm. is something that's really, really wonderful in a Michael Shaben novel because yeah. the, I think he is um, like, he gets a lot of credit for his vocabulary being <clears throat> superhuman. Yeah. <laughs> like right. His lexicon is, and I think that bothered, uh, by the way, a few of our readers as well yeah. who felt his prose was just a little too right. florid. But something that I, I don't think, I mean, maybe it's said explicitly. I don't know. I don't probably read enough book criticism, but he is a master of persistent third person omniscience. It's, I think he's tremendous at it. Mm-hmm. Like he's not like we, last month we read cloud Atlas, which is sort of, which is dabbles in form all, all across the book. Mm-hmm. The month before that we read the sense of an ending by Julian Barnes, which was a first person, mm-hmm. uh, narrator, but to have this third person omniscient narrator that, has a very distinct voice is funny. I think he's a funny narrator. Yeah, I agree. And, uh, his word choice is always playful mm-hmm. and there's always, you can find if not something funny, a clever, some sort of something clever usually in his, uh, not just a sentence structure, but the way he puts together a paragraph. But as these characters are making decisions that they're regretting in the moment, like when Gwen loses it on the doctor who, uh, they, they are doing a home birth as midwives and this woman, there's complications and they bring her to the hospital and it's a big mess and, uh, tensions are running high. Gwen's really upset. And this doctor says something really offhanded to her mm-hmm. that she construes as racist and is racist for what it's worth. <laughs> but, um, she snaps Yep. and in the paragraph leading up to the things that she actually says is just, you feel her react inside of her own brain know she's about to lose it right considers losing it loses it anyway mm-hmm. and they almost lose their med- their their midwifery license or whatever right. over this incident right and i think that's really the way he builds up to a character making those decisions 
as a third person omniscient narrator, I think is incredibly like it's intimidating. I, I think about that a lot. I think about how just in command he is mm-hmm. of built of bringing those characters to the point where they're making those decisions yeah. in such a natural way. It's really impressive work. But, um, anyway, I don't book clubs are laudatory. I've found we got to read something we really, really hate because there are, we should, should we force ourselves to talk about more criticism of the book? I guess we have been a little I, bit. I think I've said a lot of fairly critical yeah. things, but, um, yeah, I, well here, so how about this? <laughs> speaking, of, <laughs> speaking of, um, third person perspectives, I feel, and I think a lot of our readers would agree with us on this based on comments that the section in which the perspective character is Obama, yeah, um, I think was by far the low point of the novel, and right. I think a lot of a lot of our readers have said similar things. And to me, it struck me as very presumptuous on Shaben's part to write and, as o, to just to write Obama in that yeah. way. Yeah, I mean, it was yet one more thing that I found just a little bit even even before tackling the quality of the passage it already was just okay in this book where every this whole you seem to be just have no limit to the number of contrivances you'll set up to like bring these characters together in very specific ways now they just happen to be now gwen just happens to be at this obama thing where he's there he wasn't even a national figure at the time i guess he was because he'd given the he had just given the speech speech, but i mean this was early in his national career Mm -hmm. and but the problem is it's the wink, right? Because he even says like some young unknown senator from Illinois. Like he even uses that language when Yeah, but he says that knowing everybody reading the book. Right, and that's what I'm saying. The wink I is know, that's the I, thing that's really it annoying. It's too right? much of a wink to, for me. It was it's too real, winky. Uh, part of is the thing is is like I can it's it's so tough for me. I, I'm a really bad critic because I agree. Yeah. Nevertheless, when Obama showed up in the book, I was like, Obama? What? And then I instantly thought about what an insanely bold decision that was. Like, yeah. why is Obama? And then, so I read that very like voraciously. Yeah, I was like, right. I just got to get through these pages. I was so wrapped about why this was happening. And I yeah. was just sort of like, it felt like I was like at a, I felt like I was somehow like watching it on TV. And I was like, if my friends were there, I'd be pointing to them and be like, look at what's happening over here. Holy shit. Yeah. So I read that part really like with a lot of energy. Yeah. But I came away from it feeling very much the same way. But yeah. the point is, is like I actually enjoyed the minutes in which I was reading those passages sure. for I mean, out for yeah. meta contextual like contextual reasons, I guess. Yeah. But I think my enjoyment of it declined over time as I was reading it, and then ended up, <laughs> ended up pretty low um, because he was. So there's the other the, the other weird thing specifically about choosing someone like Obama, who is the president, is someone uh, someone like Obama, a politician, president uh, Obama, pre- someone like the president, president elect Obama, any, any politician who operates on a, a large enough scale that they're going to be doing things like that, going to places where they aren't from to be talking to people in the hopes to influence, you know, the, the outcome of, of an election. Like right. if they're, if they're big and important enough to be going somewhere else to, uh, campaign. to help to campaign, yeah. Um, they're going to be modulating the way they speak and the and the language they use for that audience, and I think right. that's that's pretty clear when you look at politicians like um, Obama and I would say Clinton is a master of that as well. Um, guys who, in fact, Clinton's more of a master of it than Obama is probably. Um, but guys who are able to pitch their their speech to the audience at hand, um, I I feel like someone like Obama is going to have to do that all the time anyway, and it makes it all the more presumptuous for Shabin to be able to declare this is how Obama would be operating in this particular environment at this point in his career, speaking to these people. 
I, it was just very I, – I couldn't get over it. And I, I felt like he was trying way too hard just reading the sentences right. I, and then trying to put himself into Obama's interior voice on top of that was just – Well, that's the thing, right? Is It's not just Obama on stage. Right. It's not like – an Obama fundraising event is the backdrop for something between Gwen and Archie or, or yeah. whatever. Yeah. Like that would be, it's uh, treating president Obama, this fundraiser more as setting. Yeah. Obama comes over and talks to a main character right. about another main character right. who's on stage. Yeah. That, that was the part. It was also the only not the choice I would have made. It was also the only, as far as I can recall, I could be, I could be totally wrong about this and I could be misremembering, but I believe it was one of, it was the only or one of the only passages in which the perspective character was not someone at least on the tertiary right. character list. Mm-hmm. You know, like there wasn't, you know, it was outside of the circle of Archie, Gwen, is, Aviva, is and the kids. Barack and Obama like, the perspective character? Yeah, he in absolutely that is, yeah. Gosh. Yeah. Oh, I guess he is because he, de- yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. The way he approached, I guess I'm, I'm trying to think of the way the scene unfolds. It, delves, to unfold it delves into him. his mind and it does not delve into to Gwen's. Right. Yeah. yeah, it's true. Yeah. And I, th- I thought that was really, uh, I don't know. I wonder, and this is something that's sort of outside of the book, but I kind of find myself wondering this. Sure. When you're Michael Shaben, mm-hmm. who is, he has nothing to prove to anybody. He has been just remarkably successful now for over a decade. Yeah. He has a Pulitzer Prize. He's written films. He's had, he's written the film based on Wonder Boys, uh, which is almost a literal translation of the book. And he is just remark. Like, I, I wonder what his relationship with his editor is in the, in, in that, you mm-hmm. know? And I wonder when you're Michael Shaben, if you just get to a point when you're such, I mean, he has more talent than he knows what to do with when it just comes to sheer firepower of words on a page. And I wonder yep. if you get to a point where you don't think you can fail at anything. You know what I mean? <laughs> just sort of like, yeah. I can write. Yeah, of course I can write. Sure. From Obama's perspective for yeah. one chapter of my book. Yeah. Watch me. Yeah. And I wonder, I mean, I, I was incredibly lucky about like three years ago and met Michael Shaben at WonderCon. Uh, and I like sprinted across oh, the, the Wonder wall. Boys convention, the, the Wonder Boys convention here <laughs> that I hold. <laughs> he was the guest of honor at my convention of four. Um, it was fantastic. We tried to get Michael Douglas to come, but uh, he was predisposed. Oh, was he in that film? He's the main character. Okay, yeah. yeah. Uh, what was I saying? Anyway. And he's the most, he, in that moment, I mean, and I, I pounced on him as if he was a gazelle, sure. like just, yeah, yeah, and yeah. I was waiting in the bushes. He yeah. was with his kids and I recognized him and like walked probably 50 yards in like in a straight arrow to intercept mm-hmm. him yeah. and then spoke four sentences without breathing. <laughs> it was the only time in my life I've ever done this with anybody. And, uh, he was the nicest guy on the planet and he was very sort of, uh, I mean, not meek, but you know, not there was, he did. Yeah. His ego is in a box inside of another box, inside of another box, inside of a safe somewhere. I right. think he right. doesn't carry it around with him at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's hard for me to like cast that stone mm-hmm. that I just did before about Obama having sure. that one interaction with the man. Yeah. But that's but probably, maybe. that's probably not all that uncommon for literary authors though. Right. Yeah. You know, they're, I, I think probably most of them are not accustomed to, especially in this era, are not accustomed to being out in the spotlight all the time. Right. And, be, and you know, constantly having their ego stroked in big public ways. Right. Maybe maybe in in criticism and in, in the pages of, you know, the New York Review of Books, things like that, but, but not as public figures who right. are, you know, being approached constantly and that sort of thing. But, yeah, it does make me wonder uh, 
why to make like when you make that you have you have to reconsider it right you have to put it down the page and go oh, is yeah. this going in this is staying in the book yeah staying in the book yep let's print eighty thousand of these yep. <laughs> yeah um you have you have the book open right now oh the, yeah i mean I, I opened it up to this passage this goes back a while but just when you were talking about the bit of just those little bits of cleverness and the little moments of of uh, just kind of joy in the in the in the writing itself. Um, there was one of the moments that was my favorite in that in that way. This was something that I really I liked because it was simultaneously a really pleasant exploration of language, but also a really great observation of life. And this is um, this was Archie remembering a moment from his childhood with his mother and his mother's sisters uh, together in their home, and he says. Uh, Whenever his mother's and her sister gathered, uh, um, or was this, was it Archie or was it, or was this Gwen? I, you know, I, this is really terrible, but I can't remember. Um, but I think it, this is, this must've been Archie. So he says, whenever his mother and her sisters gathered to work here and pronounce judgments in the kitchens of Archie's childhood, yeah, Archie, they had two favorite terms of fulmination. The first thunderbolt they liked to throw, reaching back to Zeus to oh, grab yeah. it from a bucket in the corner was shameless. You used to hear that one a lot. It had an amb- ambiguous shimmer. Shameless meant you suffered from a case of laziness so profound that you could not be bothered to hide your misbehavior. But it seemed to suggest also that you had nothing to hide, no f- need to feel any shame. The second word lofted by the sisters from the heights of their insurmountable outrage was scandalous. This term they collapsed like a switchblade on its hinge into two syllables, scandalous, so that when he was young, Archie heard it as a grammatical cousin of the first, an absence of that was also a freedom from. Scandalousness was a magic invisibility, a moral cloaking device wielded by the shameless in order to render them proof against the all-seeing scanners employed by <laughs> uh, proper acting people who knew how to conduct themselves. The latter group reckoned by the sisters to be few in number, roughly coextensive with themselves. And that's page 214 in the in hard yeah, edition. Yeah, I remember smiling while I was reading that. That was so great. Yeah. That's the kind of thing that as a kid, I remember... Oh, totally. I, I mean, this is, this I is gonna a, say that. a stupid example because it's not meaningful in any way, but... You know, I used to I used to think windows were called wind downs because you you bring them down to close them. You know, right. th- just things, and that's the and they stop the wind. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and and that's the kind of just of little thing that a child mishears and then fully internalizes. Right. Not know, only internalizes, but then like rectifies their reality exactly. with that yeah. new definition. And I and I loved that moment there because the one it was just a very it was just a very enjoyable paragraph to read. You know, I mean, there's just there's just great sentences in that mm-hmm. uh but but also that specific observation about the way children interpret and, and internalize things i thought was just wonderful yeah. and that, that's that's the kind of thing that i i love about shapen's writing totally absolutely and I, you know what's funny is i feel like it took like 150 pages to get to that stuff <laughs> i mean it felt like so much at the beginning of the book was about setting and tone and yeah. being like guys this is where we're going guys this is where we're going yeah yeah and that was really tough for me. I I literally I finished the book today, so right. I feel really like I think that I had such a joy in the ending of the book, and just yeah. sort of once the characters started colliding in these really un- yeah. unexpected <clears throat> ways. But it was a rough go for me at the beginning because I felt like I felt like I was going on a date again with somebody who I'd always <laughs> had these like had like really like good chemistry with. And this sort of like spark. And then finally we go out on whatever this fourth date. And I was, wait a minute. <laughs> it was sort of a wait a minute where the spark go. No, moment. totally. The, the book front loads kind of the tone and the setting and keeps the ideas kind of right. a little buried. It's funny because this is, I'm, 
we can't really talk about this in much detail right now, but just to, to con- compare it to the book we're reading next month, which is um, Evidence of Things Unseen by Marianne Wiggins. I've been reading that over the last couple of weeks and I'm really enjoying it so far. And it's, it's funny because that book, it is the exact opposite. Oh, good. That book front loads all of its ideas, even to the point of almost abstraction. You know, for the first, I don't know, 50, 100 pages maybe. And it, and it really takes its time before settling into the actual setting and tone mm-hmm. that covers most of the book. Uh, and it's the exact opposite of what Telegraph mm-hmm. Avenue is, where it starts with all of the stuff about, um, the kind of nostalgia of vinyl and this, the set, the physical setting and the idea of this neighborhood and the music and this and that. But it takes quite a while before it gets you into the rhythm of what the book's ideas are and what the kind of fundamental themes are. And the thing that was really sort of off-putting to me about that at the beginning was that nostalgia for vinyl and the sort of the setting of uh, a nostalgic Oakland, I guess. And like it, yeah. it um, tells stories about the Black Panthers and mm-hmm. sort of civil rights uh, mm-hmm. in the Bay Area was that the nostalgia seemed to be coming from the narrator and not at all from the characters because the characters – I don't know if I agree with I don't that, know. Nat and Archie, it feels like at the beginning, have this sort of like <sighs> – they don't feel their love for the store until it comes into until it's mm. until it's at risk. I feel yeah, like yeah. it feels like they're just sort of at their shitty record store bickering with each other and yeah. and uh, like mixing it up with the local with the local clientele. Yeah. Oh, I can buy that. And then so and I think the nostalgia for the the subject matter is even more pronounced with and it peters off if you notice in the past hundred like the last hundred pages with the pointed. Um, song references with parenthetical publisher right. years. Yeah. They stopped afterwards. He stops doing that. And it just felt yeah. like, I didn't know like why I no, And actually I kind of agree with you And the point. Well, he doesn't stop doing it entirely, but it definitely trails off. Yeah. And I actually kind of agree with you in the sense that as that trails off, that's when it feels like the nostalgia for that stuff gets more genuine. Right. As it stops being kind of cleanly cataloged. Exactly. And more just seeps into, as you get into characters like, um, Mr. Jones, Oh yeah, Coaches you know, Jones. Coaches Jones. The best. Yeah. What a good name. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. a great character, I thought. And that's like that's the kind of character that allowed that nostalgia and love to be expressed in a in a much more believable, natural way. Right. You know, I, I buy that that guy is kind of the the nucleus of this community's absolutely history of 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 uh, jazz and soul and funk music. Right. Like that was totally believable to me because mm-hmm. that's the kind of that's that's that is the kind of community you have that's anchored around. In music, absolutely, you know, it's anchored right. around these few key figures, often session musicians that have played with everybody that everybody knows, you know, that have been on dozens of records, but nobody outside their circles ever going to hear of them, right? You know, outside of this very specific community of mm-hmm. people that write about right. music in, a, in journals and things. And I thought like he that. embodied that aspect of the jazz scene, like modern jazz scene. Mm-hmm incredibly well i thought that was perfect like coach east jones was famous in the exact right way and that stuff yep. felt super yep. naturalistic to me i just have recently gotten into that world the past couple of years because my mother-in-law who is jazz obsessed in mm. seattle yeah, yeah. and so i've been going to shows with her when she's here or i go up i'll go to a show in seattle with her and just the cattle like the amount of knowledge mm-hmm. she has about Absolutely. that very local scene yeah. rang really true with the Cochise Jones character, yeah. the sort of people, the uh, pe- the people who Cochise Jones is up dying in the book, and they have his memorial at Brokeland Records. Yeah, and everybody who comes out, it feels like of that community. You know, um, mm-hmm. it's uh, it's super. It's, it feels very like racially diverse that community um, in the book who comes out for <coughs> Cochise's for funeral, and even the clientele of Brokeland uh, feels like a very modern 
it's funny. It's like they just they feel like dorks. They feel yeah. like geeks. Like yep. it's like the dork community. Uh, very similar to our work with Edel Thumbs, I guess. But <laughs> <laughs> the sort of enthusiast yeah. community yeah, 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 yeah. as opposed to it being down any sort of uh, racial or class lines. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah. But I mean, but you like the, I mean, we, I, I don't know. You like I did. The, and yeah. you know, we've, it's, I, I did, I did like it. And I, and I, and as I said before, a lot of it just dealt almost all of what I liked about the book was one kind of just the experience of reading Shaban's words, mm-hmm. which I, I thought were, you know, as, as I've indicated, not very well pitched in, in a lot of areas, but generally speaking on balance, I, I just have a lot of fun reading that stuff. It's yeah. just really enjoyable. Um, and then the characters I just thought were, were, were really the core characters I thought were really, really good. Mm-hmm. You know, the two couples and their kids. Um, and, uh, what did you think about the sort of the criminal underbelly of the book? The sort of like, that was a, the, the Luther Stallings, who's this old black exploitation character and his like exactly, to be honest. old co-star Valetta Moore, who's kind of his yeah. Because again, partner. I really, all that I, stuff felt really weird to me. Yeah, <laughs> Chan because, flowers, all those guys. Yeah. I, I exactly right. Good it names feels, though. I know names that are really true. fun to say. It's true. I read, <laughs> I, I read somewhere that, um, that this some in, um, I can't, it might've been the New York times, uh, book review. Uh, I can't recall of this, but it was somewhere. Um, someone, called this kind of Shaban's adaptation of the a Tarantino film yeah. to to okay. prose. Which is weird because Tarantino is heavily referenced in the first half of the book. Yeah, well I think that's probably not weird. I think it's probably Yeah. Well I mean it's it's, I, it's always bizarre to me to it, adapt yeah. something and then heavily reference it. And it just it didn't it doesn't work for me in that vein. And a lot of it is because all of those moments felt very that's the stuff that felt like it was deliberately trying to evoke either Tarantino or the stuff that influenced Tarantino, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, there's, I mean, for crying out loud, Julie and Titus take a class about, uh, I don't remember what the subject, it was some like, it was a Tarantino class. It was a Tarantino class. It It was like all the people who, it was like, it was all of the influences of of Tarantino. They were taking it, they were taking it like city college. They were auditing it at city college, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, they, they study these, Black exploitation films, and uh, right. including, I guess, one that was that starred Luther Stallings, Archie Stallings' right. father, Strutter, Str- <laughs> Strutter, right? Um, Strutter, what is and, Strutter, Strutter rides again, and well, yeah. there was the second one was the third one was the one he was trying to make right. throughout this, and those are all the things that that I things like that, the kind of textual references, and then the stuff like Chan Flowers and the kind of Black Panther incident that they were trying to cover up, where this guy had. Had killed someone um, I have a, for Huey Newton, you know, yeah. decades ago, and uh, and then all the stuff about the bloody glove and the <laughs> somehow Gibson Good is related to this, I think, or something. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, all yeah. of that stuff just felt so. It just it doesn't hold up. With, I could so this is the thing <laughs> based on Yiddish Policeman Union. I could totally imagine Shaben writing a book right. that was that just that exactly stuff. we know this guy and can centers, write a mystery centers around that <laughs> yeah but the the core of the book to me wasn't that it was the relationships of these other characters in this life they're living right and stuff that is ultimately more mundane plot wise but i thought had a lot of personal gravity um but there were all these other elements that i felt like kept getting grafted on that were trying to be that kind of tarantino right. flick kind of 
kind of but there was none of the structural experimentation that Tarantino right. films actually have there was none of the and it doesn't become interwoven at the end ex- right exactly yeah Archie all- just sort of walks away from the situation with his father I mean he does rectify it yeah but kind of off screen yeah to use a bad right. term for reading fiction but so um, that, that whole underbelly thing that you're asking about yeah i don't know it didn't really work for me it, it, it's it funny just odd it felt like this book really feels to me a lot like wonder boys if wonder boys and like jackie brown made a baby <laughs> um and the thing that's really interesting to me and this is sort of this is something i couldn't get out of my mind while reading the book when it comes to the criminal underbelly aspect of mm-hmm. the novel which is a sort of, I don't know how to, else to describe it other than a B storyline. Yeah. I don't know how else I would describe it. It yeah, doesn't feel it's like. basically what it is. Yeah. yeah. But in Wonder Boys, there's a scene um, where the main character is with his editor and uh, one of his students is drunk and he, they're sitting at this uh, bar after a. Uh, Sort of like it's sort of like an after like there was an after party at the bar of this event they go to and they're there and they're everybody's getting drunk and they're playing this game. the The main character of Wonder Boys is an author mm-hmm. named Grady, and Grady and his editor are playing this game that they've clearly played many times before. And this scene is actually in the book and it's also like shot for shot in the movie, which is cool. So mm-hmm. if you check out Wonder Boys the movie, it's great. Curtis Hansen directed it and Michael Shabin wrote it. It's a really fun movie. To, it's great. It's really really fun. But they're sitting there and they do this story where they look around at somebody. And they quickly pitch them as a character. So they'll say, oh, you know, they look at the waitress Mm, and it's just like her name's Cindy. She, you know, has a degree in whatever, but dropped out because she got into blah, 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 Mm -hmm. blah, blah. So in the book, um, they look over at this guy and he's sort of like this like tiny, he looks like a tiny version of James Brown. I don't know how to describe him. At least that's what he is in the movie, unfortunately. And they go... His name's Vernon. They give him like Vernon Hardapple. And they start telling the story. And their student peps up and puts the capper on it. But the story is about how this guy Vernon in the bar, his name's Vernon Hardapple. And uh, he ended up doing some time um, taking the taking the rap for his... Uh, he's a jockey. And his uh, horse gets murdered by the mob. Uh, it's a whole... They tell this whole story about this right. guy. And then they yeah. end up getting their paths crossed with that guy in the bar later. Mm-hmm. So every time they interact with him in town... They call him Vernon, and the guy has no idea why they're calling him Vernon. Mm-hmm. But you get every time you interact with him in the book, there's this sort of like fictional, as created by the main character of the book, story of this life of crime that Vernon has led. But he's just like a regular townie, probably right. has a job as an accountant or something. Right. And it felt like he took that moment in the book, which rings so wonderfully all the way through <laughs> Wonder Boys, and just yeah. decided to make it real right. <laughs> in Telegraph Avenue, yeah, yeah, yeah. which was. I couldn't get over it. I yeah, just felt yeah. like I was reading this, reading the actual story of Vernon Hardapple. Right. And, uh, gosh, I wish I could remember the story of Vernon Hardapple, like word for word. Cause it's hilarious. That's okay. I mean, yeah, it's very good. Check it out. No, totally. But, uh, I, it's, you know, it is it, that, that sort of like mashup for lack of a better term yeah. in this book. It was again, ultimately entertaining to physically, to put my eyes on and read. Right. I really page by page. Mm-hmm. Even the sub, even when the subject matter went to places that I thought I was felt silly, the same way for the most part. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's funny you bring up the comparison to that that book because there were two main points in this book that very strongly reminded me of moments in other books that I unfortunately thought were done so much better in those other books. Other that, books that, of his that or other books recently? Of other no, oh. by other authors. So it's not directly comparable right. to what you just said, but I'm just going to use it. No, as go a, for it as a segue. Um, so the, the, the first was along with the, um, 
Obama moment, my other least favorite moment in the book, which was the um, the chapter "A Bird of Wide Experience." Oh, I was going to ask you about that, that chapter is next. One sustained sentence, yeah, it's for a the entire nine-page chapter. chapter of yeah, one sentence, most of which about seventy-five percent of which is the path of the. De- you know, deceased Cochise Jones, his his parrot, forty five, flying through the city of Oakland, and when you pitch it, it's just going to sound great. Sorry, keep going. And stopping, <laughs> and 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 sort of intersecting with many, you know, a combination of key characters and just little vin- unrelated yeah. vignettes. Uh, not unrelated, but but you know, he just kind of peeking these slices of life that forty five yeah. is witnessing, and it just it felt so much like you know it's kind of how you were describing the Obama thing. Can I do this? Like, is this okay? <laughs> and it felt like he had a moment here where he's, can I do? Can I have a nine page sentence? Can I? Yeah, you know I, he wrote I, that I in one. Stuff. You know he wrote that in one session. I'm sure, and he walked away from it and just like, nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And I just it did not work for me. It really did. It did not justify. Its existence. I'm all for kind of literary experimentation, mm-hmm. but I didn't think this justified itself. You know, I think it right. was a worthy attempt. Did not. But you know what it work. felt like? It felt like it's funny because we can talk about the cover of the book. Yeah. But the cover of the book, the chapters of the novel. There's only five. Yeah. Are right there on. I guess you would call this like an EP. Like, yeah. are the cover of the book just looks like a red vinyl record with a the middle sticker, a track listing, the track listing in the middle with the on the middle sticker, and the third track a bird of wide experience or the third um chapter feels like the like the jazz interlude experimentation track <laughs> sure, on yeah. an album yeah and i feels like that feels like where that and that worked for you it didn't didn't work for me necessarily yeah, but yeah, like yeah. i saw, guess at this stage was, i didn't you saw what he was getting at in when i got well the problem structure. is this is actually the issue with me in the book mm-hmm. with it's it's a very personal thing like yeah I was reading the novel, yeah. got to chapter three and said, okay, I have a little time um, before I have to go do this thing. I should just, I'll just get to the next break because mm-hmm. the, the book is broken up. He has sort of like section breaks every right. five to 12 pages ish. Yeah, sure, yeah. So I was like, oh, let's get to the next one of those. And I start reading. I'm like, oh man, I got to go. Yeah. And I read about a page, second page. And then on the second page, I went, wait, is this one sentence? And I like went back to the first page and I said, oh my God, this is one sentence. Yeah. Oh, fuck, I have to go. So I just like, I read two more pages. I'm like, it's going to end. He can't write more than four pages. Since. <laughs> so then I got to the middle of it. Right. And this is not Michael Shaben's fault. This is just the human being, but I got to the middle of it and had to stop. Mm-hmm. So I had to come back and read it and pick it up again. And there's right. nowhere to pick yeah, it up yeah, really. Yeah. Start over. Yeah. So I started over again. And then by that point, like it was the, it was like if you asked a marathon runner, like it's like I thought I was going to quit on mile twelve for some reason. Mile twelve was just the hardest one for me. I just yeah. couldn't get past this. It was like every time I would try right. to read it, I get a headache or like yeah. oh I gotta go to the bathroom. Like oh I'm kind of thirsty. It was this like tiny yeah, yeah, chapter yeah. that I had to overcome. But ultimately, I don't know. I'm really forgiving with stuff like that. I'm probably yeah. less critical than I should be. I just kind of got over it and went nice. Forty five is going to go off and live in the. <laughs> live with the the parrots of t- telegraph hill or whatever yeah. yeah yeah no i don't know i didn't i it didn't it didn't work for me and i it immediately reminded me of um so last month we read cloud atlas um yeah. uh, i read cloud atlas several years ago and then after that michael uh, i'm sorry not michael Shabin, um uh, david mitchell um published a book called the thousand autumns of jacob desote which i thought was just phenomenal i thought it, i I thought it was better than Cloud Atlas. And I th- just not that I not that I didn't love Cloud Atlas, but um, 
I thought his follow-up novel was just even better. I thought it was incredible. And there was a, there was a moment, um, late in the book when the character, Jacob DeZote, who's a, um, he's a Dutchman living in, uh, Dejima, Japan, which is a port that was open to the Dutch and the Dutch only. The Dutch were the only, uh, overseas power that had contact with the Japanese at the time, other than China, I guess, to, in, in, to, to a limited extent. And, um, and there's a moment where he is just observing the world around him. And, and, uh, and the chapter opens with Mitchell just doing a very similar thing, but without the framing device of kind of a bird flying through it or, or anything, but just this, he just, this, I think roughly page long, sentence it spills over a page break that just observes life and it's all just separated by semicolons it's just mm-hmm. a big list and some of it rhymes and some of it doesn't and some of it is structured in a in a kind of metered way and some of it isn't and it just it was so beautiful and it was so well considered and there was such a great balance of the of of getting almost to the point of unwieldiness and then pulling back and it just it just felt so well considered to me and it was just such a beautiful piece of writing. And then I read The Shaven and it just felt so crass in comparison. It just felt like this guy just bleh, just going on. The bird is on the move. Just, yeah, I know. The bird, he's got and places it, to be, <laughs> things to see. Yeah. And I probably wouldn't have been a huge fan of this passage regardless, but specifically comparing it in my mind to the Mitchell, <laughs> Mitchell served which I up. just thought was almost like bordered on the sublime, you know, right. and I just – it really suffered for me. And then the other the other moment that really reminded me of another book I've read recently um, was the moment where um, where Luther Stallings is describing the secret history of the black man in California oh, yeah. according to Luther Stallings, yeah, yeah. which is his kind of weird oral history, kind of pseudo-conspiracy theory, um, uh, kind of manifesto uh, about the, the ways that um, – you know, uh, black people on the West Coast or in California had been, uh, you know, kept down by the establishment and by um, this kind of broad uh, white conspiracy. Um, and I, I can't remember all the details of it. It was kind of, I think, deliberately. Um, it jumps around. Yeah, it has and, like it has these sort of convoluted these points of of hyper specific. Right. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so it was it the thing. So the thing that. I liked it in theory. I love the notion of kind of oral history suggested through literature. I think that's – I like when when literary authors kind of try and delve into that style of storytelling. Right. Um, because it's, it's another totally valid way of telling a story. Um, but it it felt like Shaben only ever really half committed to it. Like a lot of it was just kind of a – Paraphrasing or like well, hinting so Luther's at doing sit-ups while he's telling it, yeah. isn't he? Yeah, isn't he doing yeah, crunches at the yeah, time? So, yeah. so it has this sort of like this like it's coming out in like these spurts, right? Yeah, but but you know that it's even metered like that too a little bit. Yeah. yeah, and I it just made me kind of feel like I wasn't getting the full effect really. Um, and it reminded me of um a book I read last year, uh, Wolf Hall by Hilary Mantel, which was fantastic. I mean, incredible. I, you know, I've I've, I've I've pitched it as one of our potential selections for the book club, and it's a it's a historical novel um, that follows the life of uh, of um, of Thomas Cromwell, um, and 
it on so i don't know if you've seen a man for all seasons that that film or mm. like stage play or anything but like traditionally cromwell's portrayed very negatively you know and thomas more like his chief antagonist is portrayed as a man of extreme integrity and and so on and this book really kind of flips that um which i th- i thought was really interesting and it's it's just an incredible it's an incredible book it's historical fiction but it's rigorously researched and like very it's very rigorous except for the parts that Hillary Mantel fills in the gaps, you know, mm-hmm. where we don't know – we don't know specifically the words people would have said to each other obviously at the time. But it's it's great. It's an incredible book and I'm, I bought the sequel that I'm reading next. And anyway, sorry for all that. But the, the thing is there's a moment um, – uh, I don't know. In the, in the middle of the book, Cardinal Wolsey um, who is kind of men- Cromwell's mentor, he's the archbishop and he is – um, or, he, or, or he's cardinal, and he's uh, relating to Cromwell um, this kind of mythical history of Britain. That kind of the name of the, the chapter begins an occult history of Britain, and it just starts with Wolsey just relating this weird kind of pseudo metaphysical um, mystic occult history of the British Isles to to Cromwell purely in Woolsey's voice. And there, there's no quote marks or anything. Mm-hmm. It's just his voice just going on for pages. And that just seamlessly weaves into just normal prose for right. the rest of the chapter. But it just it just thrusts you right into this world of like Albion, of these crazy mm-hmm. giants who roamed this land and were like the forebears and the and it's kind of simultaneously portrayed as something that that Cromwell clearly doesn't believe is actually true and probably neither does Wolsey, but is simultaneously incredibly vital. Right. And they, well, it's and, emblematic and sort of, yeah. Yeah. And is, and suggested, it is suggested that there are many people contemporary at the time who, who this would be something they would very much accept as, as reality. And like, right. it, it, it gave the whole thing this very kind of smoky atmosphere and this very, this really wonderful kind of oral history feel that I thought right. was really cool. And then I read the, the the Stallings bit mm-hmm. in Telegraph Avenue is just kind of it's not really a fair comparison yeah, because they're two different that. authors doing different say, things. Yeah. But it made me wish that that Shaben had at least lent that a little more specificity because yeah, he was, I, for me it felt like it wasn't supposed to. It was supposed to be Luther Stallings sort of proselytizing to these two young boys who he knows he can hoodwink because that's what he does. And it was because it was too it was too Titus yeah. and Jules. Yeah, and like in the background, Valletta's just like, <clears throat> mm-hmm. she's literally yeah. like mm-hmm, yeah. the whole time. Yeah, no, I know. And the boys are just eating it up. So when they go back and I mean, it felt like a calculated sort of manipulative thing. But I guess on, I feel like Luther's if part. Shaben would have tried to actually ensnare us more than that. I guess. I, yeah, uh, I that, that that is, I think, is a valid, uh, just a valid desire at least. Yeah. Because when the boys go back and talk to Archie about how like they end up getting into a whole mess of trouble because they've interacted with Archie, the son, and they've interacted with Luther, the father. And they've sided with Luther because Luther sort of ensorcelled them with his yeah. bullshit, yeah, <laughs> which I thought right. was good. Yeah, yeah. But uh, no, I hear it's it's, it's hard it's, watching it's kids a on a page get hoodwinked when you're yeah. just like, oh, I wish this was better. Yeah, yeah, I understand that. But you know, I also recognize that it's a very it's a it's a too specific criticism, probably, and it's not so much a criticism as it is just my wishful thinking. Exactly, because you're like, oh, it. I really wish but I could experience yeah. what I experienced in Wolf Hall again. Right, and this, but it's, yeah, yeah, but it's not. I can't really take Shaben to task for it. Of course you know? not. Yeah. Um, 
Well, the thing, you know, what I was going to say is we've talked a little bit about the books because this is our third book with the Idol Book Club, uh, and I think I liked this book more just by pure coincidence. In I've only read, so I've been crunching at work, like we've been working like mad mm-hmm. people up until this week, yeah. And so I've only read three books in three months, right? Which was the three books we've read for yeah. the right. for the book club, mm-hmm. and I feel like I was really happy to read this book after mm-hmm. reading the last two because I felt like the sense of an ending was this incredibly small, specific, like minuscule, like internal narrative of almost infinite depth. Mm -hmm. And then I felt like Cloud Atlas, and I loved it, and then I felt like Cloud Atlas was this this broad, sweeping, sprawling, sprawling, it had breadth with very pointed depth, like laser-pointed depth across this wide, Mm -hmm. uh, vast landscape. Mm -hmm. Whereas this book felt um more lo- it was this sort of this medium i guess of this localized mm-hmm. yeah. story they didn't yeah. go as deep it as just anything marinated in yeah in particular, yeah and it, it was, was felt, a period it was right. of a very recent period exactly so it felt simultaneously like familiar enough mm-hmm. that you can immediately kind of get into its depth pretty quickly right. um but just distant enough that or just specific enough yeah. in its distance mm-hmm. that there was stuff for Shaven to flesh out. Right. And I feel like had I read something that was of the same, of the same scale, I yeah. guess, um, before <laughs> this, I would probably be harder on it. Sure. If that makes sense. I can totally, I, yeah, totally yeah. I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Because yeah, the, we, we probably, the books we've read in so far have been relatively atypical novels, you know, right. neither of them has been, I mean, yeah, they're they're both very high concept in a way, right? Like, uh, a sense of an ending is this almost a novella, and is is structurally kind of unusual for a novel. I mean, it's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Cloud Atlas is yeah, completely high concept. You know, yeah. it's a, it's a it's a very deliberately specific structure mm-hmm. with like a very unusual um, uh, mechanic to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then this is this is a novel. This is a classical novel yeah. in the in a, you know in a lot of ways. And so is the book we're reading next month, really, um, uh, Evidence of Things Unseen. I mean, it's massively different to this right. one. But formally, you know, it's it's a modern novel mm-hmm. like this one is. Yeah. Um, and so, I, yeah, I totally know what you mean when you say that. Yeah. Yeah. Are we, we done for Yeah, let's be done. Yeah. So we, we lo- by the way, we re- love engaging the conversation on the forums and especially on Twitter. We have a Facebook page now. It's been really active, especially the idle forums. You guys are intimidating, intimidating in your level of analysis yeah, <laughs> and yeah. we want to integrate that stuff to this process. We're just really shitty at it. So we're going to try to figure, we're trying out, to figure out how we would talked about a little, a lot before we uh, started recording tonight about how to do that better. Yeah. So it's just tough because we, we, we record at our desk with our microphones and the computer is somewhere else. We, we don't have a printer or anything. Anyway. Yeah. We don't want to be just, like, but it's also, it feels weird reading a forum post. So we're, right. we're trying to figure out how to better integrate that stuff. And if you guys have any suggestions, let us know. But also, if you want to write in about the book we're reading, um, you can write to books at idlethumbs.net. And that, that's a more direct way. Yeah. That's a really good way to give us a pointed question. So maybe we'll yeah. try to do it. Like if we get enough email, we'll maybe we'll do mailbag for, yeah. for the sense of an ending. See what that's like. You mean evidence of things unseen? What did I say? Sense of <laughs> sure. But, the other national book or, yeah. But if you don't, if, if you don't have that specific goal in mind, I would still highly recommend checking out the, uh, idle forums, um, for the idle book club because the discussion is just off the charts. It's really fantastic. Yeah. And especially some, if you found us on iTunes, on which is awesome. <laughs> if you, you might've found us on iTunes. So hi. And, uh, 
idlebookclub.com is the website and it has access to the forums. It's a really like just well-designed home for the, for the podcast. And, uh, it's worth checking out if you have a minute. Yep. And there's a Facebook page as well. Search for idle book club on Facebook. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, we're on Twitter as well. Idle book club. Um, so yeah, thanks for listening. Next month we'll be reading, uh, evidence of things unseen by Marianne Wiggins. Um, that book, uh, unlike this one was published several years ago. So you should be able to find it on the cheap. Um, I know some people were not thrilled about having to pick up a new hardcover yeah. this month. Um, so that shouldn't be a problem. And then the month after that, uh, we're reading, uh, the great Gatsby by F Scott Fitzgerald. So if you want to get a head start on that, feel free. Yeah. Okay. See you guys next month. Thanks a lot. Bye. Thanks. That's it for this month. Join us next time on the Idle Book Club when we will discuss Evidence of Things Unseen by Marianne Wiggins. For Idle Thumbs, I'm Alex Ashby.